Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 213 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I tuck into the first installment of a two-part conversation with bartender and milk punch guru, Eamon Rocky. He's a veteran of the New York City fine dining and cocktail scene and the creator of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur, a product that's seducing cocktail lovers around the U.S. with its impeccable flavor and remarkable versatility. But before we start talking about the conditions that set the stage for Eamon's obsession with milk punch in all its clarified glory, let's give you a chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Rocky's Spritz. To make it, you'll need two ounces of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur, one half ounce Aperol, and a few ounces of Prosecco or Champagne. Combine the Aperol and Rocky's liqueur in a stemmed wine glass with ice. Give them a good stir, maybe 10 times around the glass, you know, just enough to get everything well integrated. Then top with your dry sparkling wine of choice, garnish with a slice of fresh citrus and enjoy. To figure out how this drink works as a spritz, you really need to taste Rocky's Botanical Liqueur for yourself, which means you should visit rockysliqueur.com and check out the store finder. Chances are you'll find a liquor store near you or one that will ship to you. But the best way to describe it in lay terms is to say it's a clarified milk punch that's bursting with citrus, green apple, and tropical fruit notes. It's bright, sweet, and creamy, but so meticulously balanced that it can play well in tandem with other complex modifiers like Aperol. Now, perhaps the simplest way to drink it is paired one-to-one with your favorite spirit, but this spritz format is a great way to branch out once you've gotten your feet wet. So, now that you're equipped with a simple but completely new riff on one of the world's most beloved cocktails, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this first portion of my two-part interview with Eamon Rocky, creator of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur, some of the topics we discuss include how Eamon's childhood working in kitchens in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, propelled him to the Culinary Institute of America and then into some of the hottest fine dining establishments in New York City. What it was like to take the cocktail program at the legendary 11 Madison Park and completely standardize its cocktail program by deconstructing ingredients and thinking like a chef. How to make a completely virgin spin on milk punch that can be paired with any base spirit that a guest might desire. Why milk punch can and perhaps should more often be approached as a cocktail technique or process rather than a recipe unto itself. What to say when Sasha Petrasky of Milk and Honey asks you how to make simple syrup and much, much more. As I mentioned, this is part one of a two-part conversation with Eamon. We'll be airing the second half this time next week, but for now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this perfectly clear and incredibly flavorful interview with Milk Punch Maverick, Eamon Rocky. Eamon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Eric. 
Let's get started as we always do by just having you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you? What do you do? And uh, what wonderful liquid are we here to discuss? <laughs> My name is Eamon Rocky. Uh, I'm the founder and creator of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur. Uh, a spirit of my own design that I launched a little over two years ago, and I'm proud to uh, be bringing to the world and complementing pretty much any spirit and any cocktail that you could dream up. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, one thing that uh, was called out on the bottle was to uh, enjoy this spirit over plenty of ice. So I've come prepared, <laughs> and uh, so I figure as you kind of walk us through a little bit of your past history. We'll, we'll let some of that chill and dilution occur. A little, little audio verite for the listeners here. Ooh, hear that. Too bad you can't smell it. Yeah, I feel like I, I hear a, a crystal glass and a very large piece of ice. Yes, it's uh, so we've got a, a nice pour of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur here. It's going to be sitting there doing its chill and dilution work, but um, I think that you have a really, really cool story. And I'd love to share that story with our listeners. So could I prompt you into it by asking you to take us to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, <laughs> then uh, bring us up to speed from there? Sure thing. Well, I was born in Denver, but when I was four, my, my folks uh, moved our family to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, home of the University of Southern Mississippi, which uh, is really consequential to the town because it brings people in from all over the world. And I more or less grew up there. I spent 11 years in Hattiesburg and uh, sort of developed a, a love for food and cooking there. Uh, my, my folks were both chefs. Uh, my mother was a chef instructor at USM and my dad was the executive chef of a country club that uh, I, I got to go splash around in the pool at every once in a while and and pal around with the cooks uh, in the kitchen who I, I looked at kind of like they were gods, you know. And uh, interestingly enough, when I was 14, um, I started working at that very same country club. And uh, my father and mother had, had moved into ministry as a career, uh, interestingly enough. And uh, it was interesting or it was fun to to be in the same kitchen that my dad ran a few years prior and often working with the same cooks and sous chefs, you know. So I thought to myself, this is a, something I love, something I feel like I could be good at. And I applied to the Culinary Institute of America uh, while I was still in, in um, high school. And to my surprise, they, they accepted me. And um, after a little bit of time wrapping up high school in Los Angeles, I moved to New York into the Hudson Valley and started attending culinary school there where I thought for sure I was going to stay in kitchens and become a chef. Uh, I still kind of think that that might be my path uh, if, if all my dreams come true. But it was at the CIA that I learned for the first time about spirits and wine and sake and beer, brewing and all, all the all these new things for my uh, you know 17 18 19 year old brain and uh, I I pursued them as soon as I possibly could uh, out of out of culinary school and started working in restaurants um, that's what brought me to New York yeah what kind of inflection point in the cocktail Renaissance and fine dining? evolution was this transition from the CIA into the culinary scene in New York? I feel like that's somewhat important for this story. Sure, sure. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I graduated in 2006 and moved to the city 
within about a year or so, I wrapped up a couple things in in Hyde Park and Poughkeepsie and Rhinebeck uh, that I was working on, and moved to New York. I didn't have a job. I, I moved in with my best friend and girlfriend at the time, and both of them had gone to the culinary school with me. So uh, it was it was a very natural transition, and I started applying to uh, fancy pants restaurants, you know, and. I, I ended up at Gilt, which was in the New York Palace Hotel, uh, with a bunch of per se expats. Hotel is tough. Uh, hotel work is tough. It's a union spot, and you know it's a great fit for many, and I think a poor fit for many more. Uh, so I, I didn't stay there long. I ended up at Love Madison Park. I figured, having just read Setting the Table by Danny Meyer, that if I was going to learn about hospitality, if I was going to learn about uh, dining room uh, etiquette and and build a skill set in in that world that his teams would be the right folks to learn from and I can say that you know after three years uh, working with Danny and and the managers at Eleven Medicine Park again during the 2007 era 2007 to 2010 it was a very different restaurant then it was not. Uh, what it is now, it's grown and evolved so much and, and changed so much. Um, and I'm, I'm so proud to have been a part of that team, but it's it's just noteworthy to say that the period that that I worked at Love Medicine Park and we achieved four stars for the first time and we're really pushing for three Michelin stars, pushing for James Beard Awards, et cetera, we were an unproven concept, you know, and and the the team at that time between Daniel Hum and his and his Sue's in the kitchen and Will Gadera, who was the general manager at the time. I was a captain and a bartender there at the time. Uh, we all came to work every day looking to looking to play our best so that we could show the world and show New York City for sure that we were worth uh, caring about and worth uh, taking a look at. And that was that was a tremendous tremendously formative experience being a part of that team at that time. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you know, you you went to the CIA. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, core curriculum there. You know, everybody needs to learn how to dice an onion. Everybody <laughs> needs to learn how to, uh, you know, make a souffle or ruin a souffle as it may be. But you were pretty immediately seduced by the world of, of beverage, wine and spirits. You came to head up the bar at 11 Madison Park. What were some of the things that you did that you felt were kind of revolutionary at the time or, or that, that kind of pushed the envelope as you were just mentioning? What are some of the decisions that you made, maybe some of the products that you introduced or some of the cocktail formats that you worked with? And maybe that'll you know bring us up to where you, where you started playing around with Milk Punch. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to sort of uh, rewind the tape a touch. You know, when I joined the bar team at Love Madison Park, it was probably within a few days of, of Will, the GM, coming up to me and saying, Eamon, uh, I want our bar to be as good as milk and honey. I want our coffee program to be as good as Ninth Street Espresso or Cafe Grumpy or any of the great cafes of of that era, you know, and and you know he remarked that he knew that Daniel in the kitchen was going to was going to create cuisine that was of a world class level of caliber or world class caliber. So he said we need to make sure that at every single level we are we're performing as well as the people as the organizations that only do that, that specialize in that. And that that embedded itself in and hardwired itself into my brain. The idea that 
we are not a restaurant and we're going to provide coffee because we're expected to provide coffee, but we are a restaurant and even our coffee will be as great as even uh, the best cafes and coffee shops in, in New York City and worldwide. And for us to measure uh, our success sort of departmentally with, with that measuring stick really, really, really changed the way I thought about quality and execution. And that's something that stayed with me until now, for, and I think will be with me forever. And I owe that to Will. Uh, so I joined the bar team right after he approached me with that statement and those marching orders, it really felt like. And I, I was not the leader, and I, I've never been the leader of the bar program there. You know, when I, when I joined the bar team there, a guy named Corey Hill uh, was the head bartender and remains a dear friend today. He has a, a wine shop and spirit shop in Brooklyn uh, called Wet Whistle Wines, which was one of the very first spots to bring Rockies into. So I, I can't say enough thanks, nice things about Corey. He's an exceptional human being. And uh, if you ever have a chance to have a drink with him, you will you will hear some of the best stories ever. And there were other great people on the bar team too. Leo uh, Robachek, who became the head bartender and ev eventually, I think, bar director of, of their group. He and I were on the team together and we often butted heads. Uh, but I, I have so much love and respect for Leo. Uh, so it was during that time that you're absolutely right. The reason that, that Will... Um, tapped me and I think heard, heard my my request to do more at 11 Madison Park. I think at the time I was the youngest captain ever on the team at EMP and and I had more energy than I knew what to do with and I, I was rubbing people the wrong way frequently but all, always with the intention of doing good, you know, and, and I think Will saw the bar uh, as an outlet for my energy, right? Um, I can't speak for him, but that's my assumption. And he was, if he thought that, he was right. The bar was a place that I got to take years of cooking experience and growing up in kitchens and mold it uh, and blend it with, with spirits um, and, and cocktail technique. And at that time, I think uh, speaking to your very smart uh, question a minute ago, there wasn't a guarantee of quality in cocktail bars. There wasn't a guarantee in quality of quality in, in any establishment that made drinks. There was just, you know, the guarantee that you were going to have, uh, hopefully a decent measure of whatever base spirit and hopefully something fresh, right? Or, or if you were making something house made that it, it might be kind of cool, right? But the, the, the era of all house made syrups and infusions and, um, clarifications and all of these, um, uh, ingredients and components to cocktails that had not even started, not, not even close. Right. So when we were making things in house, because it would be appropriate as a, a, a an ambitious uh, cocktail bar team, uh, they were sort of experimental or, or they were, they were trying to accomplish something. As an example, I, I remember a, a really tasty uh, sort of lime, brown sugar, ginger syrup that we were making that always had sort of different proportions. It was boiled ginger and and citrus zest with with brown sugar and water on a stove top. So you had different levels of concentration, different levels of bitterness and extraction, depending on who was making the recipe. Um, it was being made by the pastry team in the kitchen who were extraordinarily uh, talented and, and capable. But we're, we were asking them to do something that uh, they weren't using and and it wasn't for their team, right? It was for the bar team. It was just something they were executing because we we didn't really know what we were doing at the time, right? And so I said to myself, we're, we're making inconsistent drinks. Uh, we were better than this. And in order to rectify that, I tried to think about it like a cook. 
right? So rather than simmer pieces of ginger on a stovetop, I was like, let's juice it, right? And what are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to achieve in this particular case, something that has a bit of ginger bite and a little bit of that fire. And so if we cook it for a long time, that, that fire mellows and diminishes over time, right? So if we simmer this, then we're kind of working against our own goal. How do we accomplish uh, the fire while still having a consistent product? Because if you take raw ginger juice and you let it sit on the counter in a refrigerator, whatever, it separates, right? You get, you get sort of uh, pulpy stuff at the top. You know, you got to fine strain it for sure. Then you have a relatively consistent, fairly thin body of the, of the ginger. And then you get this thick layer of starch at the bottom. You know, ginger's a root. There's a lot of starch in ginger. And so I said to myself, again, thinking like a cook, I bet just like you can do with corn juice, just like you can do with potato juice and most other root vegetables, if we heat this thing up, those starches should gelatinize and should sort of swallow up all of that juice and give it a richness and a thickness that will benefit the ultimate final product. Um, but as we already stated, if we cook it on a stovetop, then it's going to take a long time, a gradual period of time to heat up and we're going to lose the fire. And so, listen, this isn't rocket science, um, but I thought to myself, back to CIA days, there's a, there's a chef, a big round-chested Swiss chef named Chef Rapp, who was one of my first uh, skills teachers who taught me how to cut an onion, <laughs> to, as you said earlier, like a, like a true French chef. And, I, and he said to us, he's like, the hottest, the hottest cooking, the one that will burn you the most is steam. And I, 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 that like echoed in my head. And so I was like, we have something that the kitchen doesn't have in the dining room. We have an espresso wand. We have, a, we have, a, we have a, a wand for heating up milk really, really fast. And then uh, we have the ability to turn that off right away. So I don't know how often, you know, this technique has been used after. Uh, and I don't know how often, if ever it was used before. But we started to, to use the espresso wand to cook fresh ginger juice in under a minute. And then we would ice it immediately in a metal container. So it got very hot really fast and got very cold really fast. And the beauty of it is you can actually see the starch gelatinize whenever you use this technique. You don't dilute it. You're not heating it over a prolonged period of time. You're making it very, very hot very quickly. Uh, and you're cool, you have the ability to cool it very, very quickly, which means all the benefits of fresh ginger uh, and all the benefits of that rich uh, starch that incorporates all of the potential of, of the natural thickening ability of the ginger. Um, and then what we would do is we would sweeten it one-to-one -one by volume, which meant that we would have approximately 60 degrees bricks, which is the bricks level of simple syrup. And we use this technique and we use a um, refractometer to measure all of our syrups and all of our sweetened infusions so that we could ensure that every single product that we had behind the bar was the exact same level of sweetness, right? So uh, if, if we do that and we think about it like we're a cook, right, uh, then we're able to say, okay, cool, we're making a Pisco ginger lime drink this season. And next season uh, for, I don't know, the fall or for the winter, we want to switch the ginger out and we want to use sweet potato or beet or whatever. And we, we maintain the same level of sweetness, syrup to syrup, season to season, drink to drink. Then we're able to plug and play our ingredients in a very natural way. It, it, it sort of gives you a boost to drink creation and creativity uh, because you are establishing a standard that is consistent across the board, right? So 
you know, uh, I think I might have taken a little bit of a, a walk there, but, you know, the point being making very simple things, but making them very consistently, thinking about uh, what the goal is and and the best method to produce that goal, as opposed to, you know, I want to make a tasty syrup and let's throw tasty things into a pot, right? There are two different ways of going about that. And, you know, that 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 process in particular, I think the ginger is probably one that started it. You know, I thought to myself, the more things we throw into the bottle, the pot, the 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 bag, whatever, the container, and ultimately into the final product, the fewer applications we have for it, right? If we have a brown sugar ginger lime syrup, that's awesome. It's delicious. And it made a few delicious cocktails, but every one of them tasted like lime peel and ginger and brown sugar. And if you don't want all three of those flavors, you're kind of SOL, right? If you, if you don't have all of those ingredients in there, you have much more flexibility, right? So my preference has, has since been to produce the best ginger possible and then produce the best rich brown sugar, muscovado or whatever syrup possible, and then to have extraordinary uh, oleosaccharum made from the lime peel and then have very good lime cordial made from the spent lime shells uh, after juicing. And then of course have lime juice, right? So we have a spectrum of flavor to play with that we're able to, to plug and play like a cook, as opposed to, I have one thing here and it only does one thing. Yes. This is a bit of a fortuitous kind of discussion because it piggybacks really nicely off of a conversation I very recently had with uh, Ian McPherson over mm. at Panda and Sons about his switching technique and how he referred to it as, you know, Legos. Um, and it seems like what you're describing is creating versatility in a program by creating granular uniflavor products or, you know, uh, I guess syrups and et cetera, that can be kind of switched out uh, according to various use cases, applications, seasonality. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about as you've described your experience at 11 Madison Park 
is how different that sort of hotel, well, earlier you were at a hotel venue and then 11 Madison Park, a hyper, you know, premium fine dining level, how different that is than uh, some of the other influences that you cited, like Milk and Honey, which was an incredible speakeasy that did amazing classic cocktails and came up with a few modern classics after they had mastered the actual classics yes. or, you know, the, the, the coffee shops and espresso shops that did that one thing very well. And, you know, it's, it seems like a Herculean task to go to someone and say like, okay, we're not these specialized places, but we're going to try and do what these specialized places do as well as each one of them does it, but we're going to be one single program. Uh, and it seems like your approach to the cocktail program, it squared one or two of those circles by extracting those ingredients, right? It seems like impossible. How do you take all of these individual specialties and cram them all into one program? It's like, well, your solution to at least a few of those dilemmas seems to have been like pulling the ingredients apart, finding the best way to unlock the flavor of that one ingredient so that it can then cross pollinate into other aspects of the program. Because I imagine, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling that, you know, maybe the bakery team or the pastry team might have been like, Ooh, I really like that ginger thing that you did. Like, can you think we could like maybe co-op that for one of our, you know, desserts? Like, did that ever happen? Oh, for sure. And, and I'll say that that occurred, um, more, following my time at Eleven Madison when I started designing my own bar programs. And, and I have to underscore it again, at EMP, it was truly a collaboration. We were all trying to figure stuff out on our own, right? And that was the first time I ever bartended, you know? So we there were, there were some applications of principles and concepts, but it wasn't fully fledged. It wasn't fully mm -hmm. formed, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, to, to your point about cocktail bars, I guess just to share a couple anecdotes that I that I really 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 respect and um, remember with with uh, fondness. You know, at my last place, I'll jump forward and then jump back. But at my last bar, a place called Betany, it was a restaurant and bar. Sasha Petrovsky of Milk and Honey was a regular. He would come in and we'd chit chat. He'd dine. He'd drink. And I, I remember serving him some cocktails with sort of uh, anxiety and 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 excitement. You know. Um, and, and he became a friend, not, I can't say that he was, uh, extremely close as a friend. I, I didn't get that opportunity, but as insofar as I, I would love to have him into the, to the restaurant and love to chit chat about cocktails. And, you know, a very telling quality about Sasha is that, uh, at least in our, in our relationship, the guy had no ego at all when it came to cocktails and technique. You know, he literally said to me one day, he's leaning on the service bar. He's looking behind my bar and you know, I'd served him a couple of drinks and, and we were chit chatting about where they came from and what the ideas behind them were. Uh, and he said to me, Hey, you know, uh, how do you make your simple syrup? And I was like, what? Are you, I, are you, I, I couldn't tell if he was pulling my leg. I legitimately thought that he was messing with me or, or he was about to tell me that one of the bartenders screwed it up, which, you know, it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. And the drink wasn't, tasting the way it should have right so so i was like what do you what do you mean and uh and he's like well at milk and honey um the way we make ours and and i and i hope i'm not misquoting him but but i as i recall it you know he's like well we take a box of domino sugar and we pour it into a core container and then we fill it up with hot water and then we shake it and that's our simple syrup 
and and I was like, okay, cool. And and my thing was like, what well, what's the issue, you know? And I I later uh, I told him how we make ours, which is one to one by volume of hot water and granulated sugar. And incidentally, it's the same by weight and by volume with granulated white sugar and water. But I told him that's what our method was. And I later got, because again, I was like kind of dumbfounded by the question, you know, from somebody who's such an icon, right? And and a standard setter uh, in so many ways. Um, and I tried the experiment uh, of, of doing it his way. And I was like, oh, this is not simple syrup. This is a different ratio. And, and he told me, he's like, we do it that way because it's like we buy the box and we have the quart container and we have water. So it just makes sense to do it that way. Right. And, and it just blew me away. And I was like, wow, he's, he's operating with a different ratio of sugar to water than most people do. Right. And, and it's because it just seemed to be the most convenient way of producing it for his bar. And, you know, his recipes were tailored to it. So it, it was an, it's irrelevant that it was different because he's only making his recipes. Right. But I just thought that was so funny and cool and humble um and one of my favorite memories of of chatting with uh, a, a person of his caliber you know um mm -hmm. and likewise you know to to your point about you know a restaurant being sort of in a position that it seems like it's uh impossible perhaps to to get to the level of of a death and company or whatever right these these great iconic bars I was I was chatting with Jim Meehan, uh, who who over the years has become a friend, and I miss him since he moved to the West Coast. Um, but I I was probably you know blowing smoke up his ass and and hopefully being uh, effusive in my respect and praise for a PDT in this conversation. He was like, well, yeah, but Eamon, the thing is, you're working at a restaurant that has so much more than a cocktail bar. We don't have a walk-in. He's like, when I go into a walk-in at PDT, when I open a fridge at PDT, all the Criff Dog stuff is there, you know? Uh, and and the way that creative creative process happened for Jim, I, I think, uh, was looking to the world of, of cuisine and ingredients and seasonality and, and, and all these things, but they didn't necessarily just appear in his bar or in his restaurant or in his walk-in or in his pantry, right? And I never thought about that until he said it. And I was like, wow, there are so many advantages of having a bar that focuses solely on the creation of extraordinary cocktails. But on the flip side, there's something to be said for being able to walk into a restaurant's kitchen and take a look at the wall of spices or the, the wall of produce or whatever and say, man, there's a ton I can use here. You know, as an example, we, we had a drink on the menu called the peas and thank you. That was in, in springtime, summertime, you know, the result of me walking past um, a compost bin in, in Bettany's kitchen and seeing all of the shells from these incredible hand shelled sh snap peas, right? Just being thrown away, right? Because they're stringy that you don't really want to eat them. They're, they're fibrous and the peas are friggin' amazing but the kitchen had no use for the shells, So they just threw them away. And I walked past this compost bin and I saw what had to have been like eight or nine pounds of just beautiful green, fresh snap pea shells. And I was like, Hey guys, can I have those? You know? And so I didn't pull them out. Obviously we waited for the next round, but you know, we, we got all the shells, we juiced them and Holy moly, it was amazing. And we made this, I think it was a gin, uh, gin sour with the, the snap pea juice and a bit of chartreuse and some kefir that we were brewing ourselves in the walk-in, you know? And I'm like, that's, that's what Jim was talking about, you know? 
because you're not walking past a compost bin in a cocktail bar full of, you know, incredible farmer's market vegetable scraps, you know what I mean? Vets, vegetable trim. Um, and for that reason, I, I feel like there's something to be said for keeping an open mind and, and, um, and being, being interested in finding the things that your particular organization, your particular team presents to you uh, as being an opportunity. Well, I think that I for creativity and the uh, formal training in quality control uh, is a pretty solid backing for somebody who would then go on to launch a consumer packaged product. Totally. So how did we then get from the point where you were running bars and restaurants or restaurant uh, bar programs at restaurants to the point where you decided you wanted to create Rocky's Milk Punch, which has come to be Rocky's botanical liqueur. Totally. Uh, well, you know, at 11 Madison Park, uh, my buddy Shiraz, Shiraz Noor, who's an extraordinary cook and uh, beverage and service professional in his own right, we were working together behind the bar. And uh, at one point, if I remember correctly, one of one of the bar team and I went to uh, Bar Playad, which was Daniel Baloud's uh, bar at Cafe Baloud, where um, a guy named Cameron Bogue was, was running the program. And we'd become friendly, uh, and he said, do you want to try something cool? And I said, of course I want to try something cool. So he pulls out a highball glass full of ice, sets it in front of me, grabs a bottle of uh, clear liquid. It looked like wine. You know, there was nothing, there was no label. It was very nondescript. And I had a little bit of color uh, and, and poured it simply over the ice and pushed it in front of me. He was like, there you go. You know, and it was a full cocktail. It wasn't a taste of something. It was clear that this was a cocktail, but it was poured from something that looked like it was um, a component of a drink, right? And uh, I, I gave it a sip and, and I thought, oh my God, this is one of the most tasty and delicious, cool uh, uh, things I've ever tried in my life. It was thick and rich and had acidity, but it wasn't, it wasn't bracing. There was definitely booze and, and some spice, uh, but it, it was just in balance. It was perfectly integrated. Uh, and that was a clarified English style milk punch. He, he had essentially simply replicated uh, the Jerry Thomas recipe for clarified milk punch. And I ran back to 11 Madison, uh, not literally, but figuratively. And I told my buddy Shiraz, who again, is also a, a wonderful um, uh, chef um, and, and looks at things from a culinary perspective. So we, we were on the same wavelength often. And I said, Shiraz, look, we've got to try to make this stuff. It's going to blow your mind. It's amazing. And so he and I uh, essentially introduced clarified milk punch to the menu at Lev Madison Park. Uh, he went on to do his own thing and I went on to do mine. We actually teamed back up uh, later at a restaurant called Aska, which, which um, uh, was the first restaurant that I, I had an ownership stake in and, and designed the bar program. And Shiraz was a big part of that process. So at every, the point is that every um, restaurant or bar, whether it was Atera um, or Aska or Betany, I've included milk punch on the menu and, and tried to think about how to, how to evolve the process and think of it less about a recipe and more like a technique, right? So as an example, you know, at, uh, at Betany, as we were working on the concept, as we we're developing it, preparing for opening, I thought to myself, I, I don't want to just, you know, put another clarified English style milk punch on the menu and swap out one ingredient for another. I don't want to just, you know, take brandy or rum and swap it out for tequila and call it done. Like that doesn't, that doesn't stimulate me anymore. We know that can work. And so I thought to myself, you know, every time we make a milk punch and, and it should be made in much larger batches or the better, the better the quality often 
the, the larger the batch. It just works better if it's a larger batch, right? So um, you make two or three gallons of this stuff. And if it doesn't go well, you have two or three gallons of mistake on your hands. That's very difficult to fix. And it's costly, it's time, uh, time consuming. And there's a lot of heartache, you know, in making clarified milk punches. So I, I thought even under the best circumstances, if you make a great one and you use, let's say scotch, uh, only people who like scotch are going to order that drink. And if you don't like scotch, you're probably not going to. And that's kind of a disappointment for, I don't know, 80% of the people who probably won't order a scotch drink on a cocktail menu. So I thought to myself, I wonder, again, thinking like a cook, I'm like, can I use this process to produce a virgin or extremely low alcohol uh, milk punch clarification uh, that I can then customize to order, right? And as far as I know, uh, it hasn't it hasn't been added to anybody's menu um, since, and I encourage somebody to do it. It was it worked so well for us to make a clarified English style milk punch with no alcohol. That way, I could go to anybody in my restaurant or bar and say, "Hey, you want to try this cool stuff?" Uh, and they say, "Sure, why not?" And I'm like, "What's your favorite spirit?" And they say, "Tequila," or they say, "Champagne," or they say, "Rum," or "Gin." And I I can take any of those spirits and add it all a minute to that punch base. And that changed everything for me. It's what it's that decision. Uh, little did I know this was the case at the time, but that changed the course of my career because it became our religion. You know, we made t-shirts for the restaurant that said milk punch on them. And, and you know, that if what it didn't matter, you're a cook, you're a, you're, you're a bartender, you're a captain, you're a barista. It didn't matter. Everybody was singing the mantra of milk punch and and um that uh team spirit that um was so firmly instituted uh in in the restaurant and in the bar meant that the enthusiasm washed over to our clientele to our guests and they got equally excited about it right and and any any given time 99% of the people who came to Bethany at one point or another tried it in, in one form or another, and usually got hooked on it. And every night, people people's minds were blown, you know? Uh, and it's not rocket science. It's just, you know, trying to think to yourself, what's my goal? My goal is to be able to provide clarified English-style milk punch, which is usually made in large batches, and it's made to completion from the, from the get, right? It's made to completion from the first time you pour the first glass. And until you use it all up, those two or three gallons of it, you're pouring the same drink. How do I change that? How do I rethink that by virtue of thinking about it like a technique or a process first? And so I, I, I said to myself, it's doing so well. Uh, people are so excited about it. I'm going to put this into a bottle and I'm going to do it in a, in a way that continues the execution of the drink or, or um, maintains the execution of the drink as a modifier or as a, as a co-base for other spirits. And that blows people away because there are very few modifiers that you can use half an ounce or three quarters of an ounce, and it brings something special and, and harmonious to the drink. Or if you're feeling lazy, you just go equal parts. One, one part of Rockies, one part of gin, give it a stir and hit it with a twist. It's like the most delicious Vesper you've ever had, you know? So that flexibility and, and versatility uh, was what was inspired by the clarified English style milk punch at Betney and what has eventually now evolved into Rockies botanical liqueur that you're holding or you're sipping at least. <laughs> mm, yes. Mm. 
and it is so so good. I had I had a chance to play with it last night, and um, we can talk a little bit more about that in a, in a moment. But hmm. I have some questions, some follow ups for you. Uh, I want to I want to bold some things in the Evernote program in my brain right now. I want to <laughs> I want to bold and underline the word co base. Sure. I want to bold and underline this kind of idea of realizing that milk punch <laughs> is so easy to mess up uh, for anybody who wants to hear a very uh, sort of like specific postmortem of how I messed up a five gallon batch of milk punch. Oh, Recently, boy. You can uh, check out our episode adventures in milk clarification. I, I did uh, a clarified milk punch uh, jungle birdie type thing for uh, my best friend's wedding. And uh, so that was that was interesting in how we uh, how we chose to execute that we were able to, to resurrect it in the end, but it was uh, it was touch and go for a little while. So I, I'm fascinated, but I have a technical question about this idea of extracting the booze from milk punch because you know, you mentioned the Jerry Thomas recipe, you know, one of the recipes that we've featured in the past is the Ben Franklin recipe mm. for milk punch that's all over the internet. These are good recipes. They're, they're good, solid recipes. But as you mentioned, you're not thinking of milk punch as a recipe. You're thinking of it as a culinary technique. And that's you're right. kind of stepping back a little bit. Instead of, instead of sitting there with your nose two inches from the recipe, you're sitting there holding the recipe out at arm's length and saying like, all right, what is this essentially? If we break apart all the components and you're noticing that it's some booze and a bunch of other ingredients, but that there's might be an opportunity to separate those. The booze though is an important component in the shelf stability of the milk punch, which if we're going back 400 years, as it says on the side of your bottle, you know, that was important back in a time when milk punch was designed to be shelf stable at yep. a non-refrigerated temperature. Indeed, refrigeration did not exist in the way that we know it today. Yep. Of course, the acidity and of course, the bricks of the product also play into that. But like when you're making the milk punch, there's this curdling that occurs. Of course, it's the acid that's doing the curdling. When you remove and the, the booze- and the alcohol. And so so when you remove the booze from this process, like how did you account for the fact that you don't have that alcohol then in there helping the clarification process? Did you have to modify anything or is that uh, maybe some proprietary info that you can't share explicitly? Uh, there's nothing proprietary in my brain at all. Um, at least nothing concerning, you know, bartending and cocktail stuff. I, I love giving classes and, and lectures on this stuff, you know, because people make the same mistakes I do. So if I can save somebody the headache by sharing my own foibles, then it, it is an absolute pleasure. So what I tell people about removing the alcohol from a milk punch is that you just have to uh, be cautious and you have to think about it, you know, take, as you said, uh, pull your nose back from the book and pull your nose back from the recipe. Um, what I found to be so helpful uh, is adding flavorful, water-based ingredients. As an example, tea is in almost every single milk punch. It doesn't necessarily have to be the most flavorful. You know, you don't have to go lapsang souchong in a milk punch for it to actually serve a purpose. Um, you know, if, you, if you're if you using an oversteeped 
oolong or black or green tea, uh, it, it is going to help your punch so much. The water, the water content of the tea will, will help to lubricate it. And the tannin structure of the tea bonds to the casein proteins in the milk. And it helps to form these beautiful flaky, almost like snow um, uh, curds uh, that, that will bond together and clarify your punch. Um, and, and so in terms of adapting the recipe, yeah, there were, there were some adjustments that needed to be made, but they weren't major. Uh, they, they were just thoughtful, right? Um, if, if you, if you try to have a really, really thick punch that has a high, high, high milk content, relatively low water content, even with the alcohol, it'll be tough. You know, it can be very difficult to clarify in the wrong ratio. So uh, we did a lot of experimentation. We were making, you know, at least one, often two uh, punches of various recipes every single week and usually keeping a library if it was a good one uh, so that we could age them. They aged beautifully, as you pointed out. Um, and and once, once you get the recipe and ratio and methodology down, you can plug and play like crazy, you know, um, there, and there's a long list of things that, that are pitfalls for, for making them poorly or, or for inviting an error or inviting a mistake to happen that makes it difficult to recover. But once you learn what those are, you, you're in pretty good shape to move forward. And I, I you know, I continue to give classes on it and I, I wish there was some way to sort of like broadcast it so that. Uh, I can finally tell people, stop using coffee filters to clarify your punch. Stop using them. They don't work. They actually do more harm than good, you know, and, and a litany of other, of other, stop using cheesecloth. Don't use it. It doesn't work. It, it actually is more harmful than good, right? And you can get a, you can get a clear punch uh, using either of those, but it's at great cost. Uh, your yield is d deeply diminished and uh, there's usually a lot of pain and suffering uh, that is unnecessary. And, and, uh, we can talk about that uh, anytime now or or offline if you wish. But I, and I actually kind of want to hear what happened with your uh, jungle bird uh, milk punch as well. But yeah, once you get the rice recipe down, once you get the technique down, um, you know it's it's never a never a, a straightforward process. Uh, there's a buddy of mine, Gareth Howells, who's also a uh, brother in arms in in clarifications, and I think his phrase is uh, "milk punch is a very fickle mistress," and and I completely agree with him. He's he's not wrong at all. Hmm. Well, I mean, I did use cheesecloth. I did eventually <laughs> use coffee filters. I had, yeah, I had a brewer's bucket. I had multiple levels of, uh, filtration if we're talking you know microns going you know from the the kitchen sieve all the way down to the coffee filter um i make bitters so mm. i've got access to like a, a more different types of you know you know like the, you know the those conical filters that yep. you'll use to like filter you know the cooking oil for example in a fryer you know that that provides something in between a cheesecloth and a coffee filter so for me it was mostly about kind of you know after we introduced the curds and then like fools broke them down into tiny, tiny micro curds that were, you know, like almost like that ginger starch uh, yep. that you mentioned early in the conversation. It was then a several day process of just kind of having those things drip through various filters. And uh, it, it was, it was a lot, it was a <laughs> lot. Uh, so it, in the end it was, it was good. Um, but it, it took, it took a pound of flesh with it. So, um, I mean, I guess I, we don't need to go into all the technical stuff, but like if we're not using cheesecloth and we're not using coffee filters, what is the simple way to, uh, avoid those and, and, uh, keep our yields a little bit higher? 
The misconception about clarified milk punch is that your curds are the enemy and that you should do whatever you can to get rid of them. The curds are your only friend when you make milk punch. And what I mean by that is that uh, uh, you're describing the process that almost every bartender immediately goes for when they make it. And I'm always just so confused as to why. I think there's probably some ding-dongs that put videos on YouTube showing an incorrect process. And, and I'm so sorry that that is the case, but that is not how you make milk punch, at least not in the most effective way. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Milk Punch and Fine Dining Insights, courtesy of Eamon Rocky, creator of Rocky's Botanical Liqueur, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.